0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is John Yargo, and today's guest is Leslie Leonard, who received their doctorate in American Studies and 19th-century American Literature from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Their dissertation, The Burdens and Blessings of Responsibility, Duty and Community in 19th-Century America, is a study of the emergent idea of personal responsibility as it conflicted with more established ideas of duty in the writings of Herman Melville and Harriet Jacobs, among others. Drawing on a range of sources, works of literature, theology, domestic manuals, labor pamphlets, this dissertation shows how many Americans began to conceive of moral responsibility as distinct from both duty and rules of behavior prescribed by traditional social roles. Today, we are discussing Leslie's discovery of an unpublished text by Frederick Douglass, which appeared in the fall 2021 issue of J19, the Journal of 19th Century Americanists. Welcome to the show, Leslie.
1: Thank you so much for having me, John. I am pumped.
0: First off, can you discuss the evolution of this project? Why was this essay, Slavery? overlooked for so long? And what were the challenges in bringing it to print?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So overlooked might be the wrong word here, just because, you know, you can't overlook something that you never knew existed. So the short version of this is that in June of 1894, Frederick Douglass gets a letter from the Harvard Publishing Company, who says they're putting together an illustrated history of the Afro-American race from 1619 to the present. Well, to their present. So Douglas writes a 64-page chapter to go in this book, and then the book is never published. And then Douglas dies about nine months after receiving this request. And whether or not his death impacted the publication of this book, I have no idea. But regardless, it doesn't get published. He dies, and his papers and letters and all unfinished projects kind of get packed up after his death. And at some point, they're given to the Library of Congress, and at some point after that, an archivist graciously digitizes them for the public, which is amazing, and God bless archivists, Uh, but archivists are not necessarily experts on the material that they're digitizing or making public, so it's in the archive, by which I mean it's available to see at any time on the library of congress website database uh and then a couple of years ago i'm working with my advisor nick brumell on his most recent book which is the powers of dignity which is about the uh political philosophy of frederick Douglass. and i find this text on the library of congress congress website uh and I don't recognize it, and he doesn't recognize it. So he puts me in contact with John McKivigan and Robert Levine, who if you read Douglas scholarship, you know, because they are extremely famous Douglas scholars and they were extremely gracious and helpful and they didn't recognize it either. So having done my due diligence to make sure that this piece had never actually been published before in any collections of Douglas's work, I approached J-19 uh, and I, I email the editors and I ask if they want to publish it along with my annotations and my introduction. And they did. And here we are. So it was a surprisingly easy process. Uh, the most difficult part, I think, by far was the annotations of Douglas's text, just because, you know, if you've ever read anything by Douglas, you'll kind of see all of these annotations everywhere because he's so knowledgeable. And he's, he's pulling from so many different places, and he makes so many references to historical happenings and contemporaneous happenings. And just tracking all of that and trying to find where some of his quotes or information is coming from was, let's say, a fun challenge. It was a challenge.
0: So could you give us an overview of what the essay is about? What topics is Frederick Douglass addressing? And what kinds of conclusions does he... Uh propose?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it's 64 pages, so there's a lot packed in there, as you can imagine. A large portion of the text, so it is called slavery, and it was going to go in this illustrated history. So so the idea is that it's contextualizing the history of Black Americans in the United States. Uh, and so he starts the essay off, and he says, you know, it's really a shame, but it's now the end of the 19th century, and no one remembers slavery. It's it's like the whole country has just decided to forget that it happened and move on. You know, the war has happened. The um, reconstruction has has failed <laughs> or, or never was even properly begun. Uh, so reconstruction has happened, and you know, the whole country is just kind of in this mode of we'd like to move on and forget this. And, and he says, you know, this is true for both white audiences and black audiences as well. Slavery is kind of this thing we don't talk about anymore, even though it's only 30 years past. So what he aims to do first and foremost, he says, is lodge an accurate account uh, for those who now know little or nothing about slavery, either in theory or in practice. So he's lived it. He worked his entire life for the the project of abolition. And now he's standing on the other side of this looking at a United States that in a lot of ways really hasn't changed at all. You know, slavery has ended, but really in name only. And it's been replaced by uh, extreme state-sanctioned anti-black violence. And it's been replaced by Jim Crow laws. And it's been replaced by... um, even more white supremacist fervor than there has been you know in any other part of the century and douglas is is like okay well i need to tell the history of slavery and my experience with it and and that will do it right so that's the first part of his essay is really trying to lodge this history really this long history of global slavery so he talks about slavery in egypt and he talks about uh how the Anglo-Saxons were at one point enslaved and, and then he talks about slavery in America and he really goes after the church once more for being the bulwark of slavery uh, and for upholding the whole institution uh, with Christianity uh, he's also responding directly to this new strain of white supremacist thought it's called Anglo-Saxonism and it's this idea we see a lot of it today actually but it's this idea that white people are Have this lineage right of of brave warrior anglo-saxons right so white people are naturally conquerors and and alphas and you know all of these completely made up white supremacist ideas um so he speaks he takes a portion of the essay to speak directly to that right and to combat those ideas uh and then in doing that he makes I think, his most controversial claim, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but he essentially says, you know, if, if that's true, right, he says, if we are going to uh, take you on your, your totally stupid premise that Anglo-Saxonism is a real thing and that white people do have these inherent qualities from their conqueror ancestors, he says, then let's look at the world around us. Let's look at what all of that white supremacy and white power and white violence has gotten us. Look at the world that that has built. And then he says, you know, so if you also believe then the, the converse that black individuals are submissive or passive or spiritual or or whatever the belief was, uh, he says, then sure, let's assume that that is also true. And then isn't that the better thing? So essentially he says, you know, if, if all of these white supremacists are saying that black people are inherently more submissive, then Douglas is saying, OK, sure, let's assume that that's true. But isn't that a great thing? Because the alternative is the world that we currently live in, that violent conqueror white people have built. You know, does that make sense? That's a weird, complicated uh kind of thought process but but it is this increasingly complicated rhetoric where he's willing to meet his opponents in their own stupid arguments and assumptions and say okay well let's assume that your premise is true and then if we follow that to its logical conclusion then isn't the submissiveness and the survival of black individuals the greatest strength that that we have you know so that's maybe his most controversial point but those are the those are maybe the key aspects of this essay he does the history uh he combats white supremacy he makes this really controversial claim about how black people need to survive and that that is the most important activism that one can do at the moment so so those are maybe the the big ones i guess i'll say
0: that that leads us i think to the next question Uh, The scholarly tradition around Frederick Douglass is fraught. There have been liberal Frederick Douglasses, conservative Frederick Douglasses, leftist Frederick Douglasses, and so on. How does this newly discovered text further complicate our understanding of Frederick Douglass?
1: Yeah, I mean, Douglass is, is and will remain, and, and certainly after this manuscript as well, a fraught thinker. I think that's the perfect word for it. He... I mean, he oscillates so frequently throughout his work, and he's so prolific, and he changes stances and beliefs. You know, at one point, he argues that the Constitution doesn't support slavery, and then he changes and says, no, wait, it does. And then he says, at some points, you know, rebellion at any cost, even if it has to be violent rebellion. And then later, like in this text, he advocates for survival over rebellion, even if it comes at the cost of further subjugation. So he's... You know and he, he's writing so much over his entire lifetime over the the whole of the century and he's a little bit like the bible i guess in that way where uh if you're looking for like a sound bite to support what you're saying you can probably find a douglas quote somewhere to support it because he just wrote so much and had so many really complicated ideas on things um complicated in that i mean that they were um uh, really deeply thought out, not, not complicated in that, you know, I think that they were particularly problematic. Um, But, you know, I do think that in terms of a conservative Douglas, which I don't actually think exists, uh, but he's very popular among, among, you know, Republicans. And he's very popular uh, among a lot of white scholars as well. You know, I think, I think we'll see that trend a lot too. Uh, And I think this comes from possibly things like his 4th of July speech where, you know, his rhetorical choice in that speech is, oh, the United States is amazing. It's so great. I love it. I love the U.S. I love patriotism. I love the 4th of July. I love the founding fathers. And aren't we so much better than slavery? Aren't we so much better than this? is, is what certain sections of that speech are doing. But, of course, that's a, a rhetorical move to speak to white American audiences. So so whether or not Douglas loves the Founding Fathers is doubtful, but he is a rhetorical genius there. Um, and as for this text, you know, how it further complicates how we read someone like Douglas. I mean, I... I the meaningfulness of this text I think is that we see Douglas at the end of his life I mean he's in his last year though certainly he didn't know it he survived enslavement he survived the war he survived the horrible joke that was reconstruction and now standing at the other end of all of this he's combating the same problems that were there when he started this work He's seeing an America that has failed to live up to the sometimes radical optimism that he has shown it, you know, over and over again in his speeches. He does take this rhetorical standpoint of, you know, the United States is so much better than this. I love America. I love it so much and all of the promises that it, that it has made and it can really live up to those promises. And now he's standing at the other end of the 19th century and he's kind of seeing like, Wow. It hasn't lived up to a single promise. And in fact, all of this, this anti-black violence is rather a feature uh, of the United States and not a bug at all. And I think that really comes through in this essay and I think that's really hard. Uh, so we see a Douglas who is sorrowful, who is maybe more moderate. Um, and like I said, you know, his his main push or one of his main pushes in this piece is that the best thing for his black readers to do is one remember slavery and, and truly remember slavery and, and bear it in mind um, and two, to survive that the best thing that they can do right now in a world that wants them dead is to just live through it um, and you know I think that says a lot about our own uh, moment you know whether or not we end up reading that suggestion as moderate or as radical, right? You know, in what instances might survival itself be a form of revolution? Um, so yeah, I mean, Douglas is is complex. He's got a lot to say.
0: Yeah. Following up on that, um, in the in your introduction to to Douglas's essay, you make the case that. Uh, Douglass's ideas are particularly resonant in our own historical moment. What does Douglas have to say to our concerns about anti-blackness and state-sanctioned sh- violence in 2022?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's honestly the worst part about this essay is is just how relevant it is because it is right. Uh, it's sad enough, I think, to read this piece and know that Douglas has lived through the 19th century and seen very little change if at any um you know slavery ended but it came back under a new name through mass incarceration and Jim Crow laws uh and it's even more depressing I think to read this piece almost what a hundred and thirty years later and we're still doing this I mean how exhausting (laughs) to still have to repeat what Douglas was saying in 1894 that the state sanctions the death and incarceration of black people, that the U.S. is an anti-black state, uh, that the death of black individuals is a feature of the nation state, um, that it is the U.S. working as intended. Um, You know, my God, that's depressing. This is exactly what Douglas is saying in his piece, and it's the same things that we're trying to convince people of today. And, you know, in terms of the white supremacist thought that he's trying to combat, that too hasn't changed. We're seeing the same rhetoric. I mean, it's not surprising that people who are invested in ideas of white supremacy haven't evolved their thinking past, you know, 1830 or whatever. But, but it's the same arguments, right? It's the same, oh, my ancestors were Vikings, and, and so, you know, conquering others is in our blood. You know, it's the same stuff, and I think that's really awful. Um, and I think that's, that's maybe where we see his suggestion of survival as as controversial right um because i do think that there is a great case to be made for and there's a great case that has been made you know in the work of, of audrey lord and so on you know this idea that survival and self-preservation is a form of activism or rebellion in the face of structures that want you to suffer and die you know i think we have seen that as as kind of a radical move but I also think that for many readers who are seeing that the world hasn't, or, or the U.S. at least, hasn't really changed that much in 130 years from 1894 to 2022, I think that, that reading Douglas's suggestion of, you know, lie still and wait and and be submissive and you know, be passive and, and just kind of live through this. I think a lot of people could read that as a really moderate stance and as a really um, controversial or distasteful stance, certainly. So, you know, I think, I think it really depends on the context of, of where people are, whether they read that as a valid form of activism or not.
0: You also invite us to think of Douglas as a philosopher and activist as much as an author of autobiography or history. How do you see a philosophical and activist orientation in this essay?
1: Yeah, um, so Douglas's whole kind of history in academia or in education is, is actually really fascinating. So his narrative is, I'll say discovered, discovered isn't the right term, but, but discovered uh, in 1960. And then finally, in the late 1980s, classrooms start kind of using My Bondage and My Freedom, which is his second, the second iteration of his autobiography. And then it isn't until 2014 that people start really seriously looking at Life and Times, which is his third and final iteration of his autobiography. So very, very slowly, we've seen this movement away from scholarship that focuses on Douglass' identity as a formerly enslaved man and as a black abolitionist, and towards scholarship that focuses on douglas's contributions as a philosopher as a political theorist as a democratic activist uh and this is kind of an uneven move because in classrooms especially like high school classrooms he's still mostly talked about as an abolitionist and a formerly enslaved man and obviously he was both but scholarship is kind of finally taking an interest in the rest of him right because you know what we what we have is is a man who is writing and thinking about about topics you know far beyond the scope of of slavery and abolition um and we're talking about someone who's writing across the the entire expanse of the 19th century uh and writing about all sorts of of political ideas at one point he calls for open borders he's writing about you know the nature of humanity the nature of rights you know all of these things that that we're not really uh, engaging with from him, which is a shame. So most famously, I think these days, you know, you have scholars like Nick Bromel, you have scholars like Nicholas Bukala and others who have really named him a political philosopher, which he is, of course. He has a lot of thoughts on, on democracy and, uh, and rights and things like that. But there still aren't a lot of scholars who name him just as a philosopher outright. Uh, and that's really what I'm interested in with Douglas. You know, I I would like to see a conversation about American philosophical traditions and, you know, Frederick Douglass is in there too, right? Because he writes so much about what it means to be human, what it means to have a soul, you know, what it means to be a person in in nature and under the law. So I think it's a shame that he's you know often read as just a source of information about slavery and not as a source of of really rich and complex political and philosophical thought you know um we read him so often in classrooms as like and this is what enslaved people were writing instead of thinking about him as like in in classrooms other than literature or in classrooms other than history right um which is really too bad so, so, yeah, but, but in this essay, you know, as far as philosophy and, and activism here, you know, we've kind of talked about his main suggestion here, which is that, uh, you know, there's, there's something to be said about survival, but it really speaks to a longer tradition in Douglas's work. You know, I, I mentioned before his radical optimism, which is certainly part of what he's doing. It's, it's part of a rhetorical choice that he's constantly having to make. And what he's also doing here is that he is um, like always suggesting that progress is a real thing that happens, which again, is a controversial kind of idea as well, uh, and one that I certainly don't agree with, but, But his optimism is always kind of hinting at or or sometimes outright stating that the future will be better than the past, right? Uh, As technology advances, as human knowledge advances, as the world moves along through its linear trajectory, things must get better. Uh, And I think we've seen that that is not true, obviously. Uh, And I think he sees in this essay that that is not true. But even that alone, him like in the background of this essay, grappling with that, grappling with optimism, grappling with these ideas of progress, grappling with these ideas of of history. Right? What what does it mean to have an accurate account of history? Who gets included in that? I mean, he talks about uh, the memorialization of both black figures and white figures, you know, in statues and things like that, and he's really. Contending with this idea of history as a practice and of activism as as reactivism as something that is always in existence that gets reactivated right over and over again uh, when it needs to. So there's so much in this essay that that isn't just straight activism, right? It isn't just straight like here's a suggestion for what Black individuals should do now that things remain horrible. It's it's really. You know, Frederick Douglass, this, this deep thinker, facing down a lot of these really troubling concepts that I think we're still always, all of us, are, are thinking about, you know, whether that be history with a capital H, whether that be progress, whether that be, you know, the, the unending march of time. Uh, I, I just, I really think it's an excellent piece. I think all of his work is, is really excellent.
0: If listeners wanted to read more on Douglas, what scholarship would you point them towards?
1: Yeah, so you know, as far as scholarship on Douglas, you know, you'll see the same names kind of crop up over and over again: Nicholas Bukola, uh, Nick Bramell, John Mcivigan, Robert Levine. You'll you'll see all of those, um, and obviously, those are those are all. You know, well, well vetted and, and experts on Douglas for sure. Um, but I would really suggest, I think, reading more about. Hmm, okay, I would suggest that if you're interested in Douglas, well, one, I would say read as much of his stuff as you can because it's fascinating, and there's so, so much of it, you will never run out of reading material. Um, but also, I would say read more scholars of black studies just in general um you know i think i think it's less i don't want to say worthwhile uh hmm i would say don't don't just read scholarship that is talking about douglas and instead read scholarship that is talking about uh black studies and black thought you know that that can contextualize douglas better so you know i'm thinking of um for this essay in particular, Kevin Quashi has, has a book on, um, like, uh, quiet and, and thinking about resistance and thinking about, uh, black activism. And that could really like change your thinking about how you see something like this essay. Uh, or obviously, I mean, Sadia Hartman is like the name, right. In black studies as she should be. um, lloyd pratt has some excellent chapters on douglas uh and thinking about like individualism and thinking about uh how black selfhood gets co-opted by the state which you know is fabulous and even i mean brit russert who whom we both know um you know talks about frederick Douglass in fugitive science um yeah so i would say those i would even say jennifer nash who uh I can't remember if she writes explicitly on Douglas and and the 19th century isn't really her uh, thing, but she writes about I would say black optimism uh, in a way that is really inspiring and really great. And you know, we talked a little bit about how Douglas has this kind of radical optimism that that I think. Both drives scholars to him and drives scholars away from him. Um, and I will say, you know, even as naive as it maybe sounds, I mean, I'm interested in Douglas because, because I do believe in, not in the idea of progress certainly, and and not even in the promises of the United States, but, but I do believe that there is a better world worth working towards, um, and that you have to have that kind of radical belief. You have to have that faith that defies all logic, right? Um, I mean, when the Dred Scott decision gets passed, Douglas says like, look, that was awful. <laughs> that was really bad for us, for sure. Make no mistake. Um, and then he says, but my hopes have never been higher than they are now. Obviously, this is a rhetorical choice. He's saying that because, you know, Rhetorically, it doesn't make sense to get in front of an audience and say like, yeah, I guess we should pack it in. Um, so obviously there's that aspect of it. But on the other hand, I mean, I do think there is something really, uh, I don't know, inspiring or, or admirable about someone who is so dedicated to to their beliefs or to their movement or or to the betterment of society that they say like, look, I know things are, really really bad and we have to believe that they're going to get better um you know so so there's a the weirdly long answer to that
0: (laughs) in the spirit of working towards a more just future some of the listeners of this podcast might regularly assign douglas's autobiographies and essays in their classes how might they incorporate douglas's essay slavery into say a course on 19th century american literature or a survey of African American writers.
1: Yeah, uh, so many, so many ways you could do this. I mean, firstly, I would say if you're teaching a course on nineteenth century American lit, then you are probably teaching either um, oh, how do they how do they divvy it up? They they divvy it up by what is it like American literature to eighteen sixty five. And then 1865 and forward um and first of all we should be having a conversation with our students at the outset of like hmm why do you think they might split it at that particular year interesting um but i would include it especially if you're teaching up to 1865 i would include this essay because i think it's important to i think that classes that end at 1865 whether they be history or literature so often end with this idea of like, and then the war was over and slavery was over and racism died and now we're all done. Um, At least, I mean, I hope they don't end there, but, but I know that they can have a tendency to end on the kind of high note of, and then slavery was formally ended and the war was over. So everything was great. And I think it's so important to remind students like, absolutely not. By no means were were things changed or, or were things better or, or were things you know ending on this high note? Like how dare you um, suggest even by the division of that course that you know that that was the case? So there's that. I would I would definitely include it in something like that. but I would include it alongside some of his other works, you know, like something like the Dred Scott speech that I was just talking about. You know, where he has to put on this rhetoric of extreme optimism, of we will get through this, of my hopes are so high, don't worry, if we're at the lowest point, things can only get better, right? Like, I think if you're coming from an essay like that, which can be so inspiring, and can and can really be, um, you know, inspiring for students, especially because in their minds, they're thinking about it in the context of abolition, and they're seeing it from their current standpoint. So they're saying, like, he was right to be optimistic because abolition worked and slavery ended. And isn't that great? And then following up with something like this essay to show them these things really didn't change. You know, he he had this radical optimism that I know that students are can be such a fan of when they're reading it, Um, And slavery did formally end, which students are also big fans of. Uh, And then they read something like this and or even just excerpts from this because it is, again, 64 pages long. And I think it can remind them like history is not this linear progression towards um, towards progress right things haven't gotten better just because we're 130 years removed from this essay. things haven't gotten better just because we're 200 years removed from slavery you know um, these these structures were built in from the beginning and they are still here of course so so I think this essay would be so useful to use in in a class especially alongside douglas's other works where where students are encouraged to think of him through this lens of enslavement and abolition and then i think that this essay could really challenge a lot of those initial feelings that students have about frederick Douglass.
0: finally i'd like to ask you um even though this essay was recently published have you given thought to what your next project might be
1: that's a violent question and uh I uh, take umbrage to that. (laughs) Um, I'm just kidding. Um, No, I haven't really thought about my next project. I think if I had to, also, if you can hear a dog barking in the background, I'm so sorry. I live in an apartment um, with neighbors. And I haven't really given too much thought about what my next project will be, but I, I do have a chapter in my dissertation that sorry i'm actually going to get up and close the door and see if that dissertation that is on harriet jacobs and it's on her work in light of some postbellum advertisements that are trying to reunite families and individuals who were separated through enslavement so in the postbellum period uh, you have people trying to relocate each other and trying to find each other despite being separated through enslavement and through the war. And then reading that alongside Harriet Jacobs' work where she is so interested in community uh, and and even in her piece becomes the voice of her community, right? She has that, that moment where she says, um, if anyone was passing through, we could have told them a different story, right? Not I, but we. So... So I would like to to maybe see that, see the light of day, if only because I don't think a lot of people know about the archive of of these postbellum advertisements, which is uh, it's called the Lost Friends Archive, and it is the New Orleans Historical Society. They are all available for free online. They are heartbreaking and horrible to read, um, but but I think everyone should. I think I think that uh, that they are so valuable and so telling. Um, So, yeah, I think that would be my next project if I had one.
0: Thank you for coming on the show, Leslie.
1: Yeah, of course. This was very fun. Thank you so much, John.